Last Sunday we were in verses 13 to 22. And we learned that there were two ways to enter the kingdom of God. It's always by grace through faith. But there are certain features that characterize a person's attitude and disposition of the heart when you enter the kingdom of God. And the first one that we looked at in verses 13 through 22 was you enter the kingdom of God as a child. And what we mean by that is there is a kind of gullibility in a child that we don't admire in adults because we don't think gullibility is a virtue and many times it isn't. You don't want to be taken for for granted. You don't want to be taken advantage of. You don't want to be hornswoggled. You don't want to be cheated. So gullibility is a bad thing in, in many contexts. But the gullibility of a child is, is admirable because what we mean by the gullibility of a child is a child is easy to believe their parents. If dad says it, that's the, that's the facts. And if dad says it, that settles it. And a, a child has an easy believism about them regarding their parents and, uh, unfortunately, regarding strangers, too. So in the first instance, that's a, it's a virtue. In the second instance, it's dangerous. So... You can understand how gullibility is sometimes good and sometimes bad. Well, when Jesus uses the idea of gullibility or speaking of a, the faith of a child, he's talking about a kind of gullibility that is good. That when God says something, we say yes. And if God says it, then it's true. And we don't question it. It's just a fact. And there it is. And that's the kind of gullibility that should characterize a person who's going to enter the kingdom of heaven. God said it. Now, the bumper sticker says, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Well, actually, it's God said it, that settles it. That's the gullibility of a child. The second characteristic of entering the kingdom of heaven is not not only do you enter as a child, but you enter as a pauper. Someone who has nothing to offer God. You can't earn your salvation. You can't merit your salvation, you must be able to and be willing to declare that you are spiritually bankrupt. You don't have anything in the bank, nothing to buy your salvation, nothing to pay for it. You're broke. In fact, you're worse than broke. You're bankrupt. You're, you're, in, you're in dire straits. You're in debt. And so you recognize that you have nothing to offer God, which means that he has everything to offer you You bring nothing to him. He brings everything to you. You have nothing to pay for what you're about to receive, and he is willing to give it to you as a free gift out of mercy and grace and compassion. Now, that's the first two characteristics of someone who enters the kingdom of heaven. In verses 23 through 31, there's another characteristic that must... uh, be true of a person who's going to enter the kingdom. And that is, you must enter the kingdom in full surrender. Full surrender. There's no such thing as bargaining with God. We don't negotiate. You know how you go to a used car salesman or a new car salesman, and you you dicker on the parking lot, and you say, I'll give you this, and he says, well, how about that? And you try to negotiate, and you think you're getting somewhere, 
because you think that he's knocking off this price and that price and he thinks he's getting somewhere because he's going to take you for more than it's worth. And, you know, who knows how that works. But you think you're being cheated and he thinks you're trying to cheat him. And, and, but you're negotiating and you're trying to get him to come down a bit and he's trying to not come down quite as much. God says this, it's all or nothing. Do you want eternal life or don't you? Well, I want it, but I want it on my terms. Then you don't have it. Well, I want it, but I, I want to give you Sundays and Wednesdays and you give me eternal life. He says, no, I want complete surrender. It's all or nothing. I'm an all or nothing God. And we understand that. When we get married, we have intentions that the person we're marrying is giving themselves completely to us. And so we say things like, forsaking all others, I commit myself to you. And in sickness and in health, for richer, for poor, for greater, or for worse, and so on and so forth. But we are expecting from them complete devotion. And we are extending, in that same ceremony, our complete devotion. That's what we want. We are all or nothing kind of people. We long for the day, or longed for the day, for some of you, for some of you, you're still longing for it. When somebody would say, I want to be married to you, I want to, be, I want to give myself to you completely. And you want to be able to do that as well. Well, God's no different in that regard. If you want a relationship with Him, it's complete surrender. He's going to be first in your life or He won't be any at all. So the old saying is, Jesus is Lord of all or He's not Lord at all. He's Lord of all or not Lord at all. So here we see in this passage what Jesus means by complete surrender. Beginning with verse 23, Jesus looking around said to his disciples, how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. He had just spoken with the rich young ruler and he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he said, go sell all that you have and give it to the poor. And the Bible says the man went away sorrowful because he had great wealth. In other words, he wasn't willing to take his money, which was his first place priority, and put God in the place of his first place priority and put his money in second place. He wasn't willing to put money second and God first. He wasn't willing to surrender completely to the lordship of God. So Jesus said, on the other hand, come back. I'll, I'll, we, we can renegotiate. Is that what this text says? No, the text, let, let the, he let the man go. It's all or nothing. Now, the irony is this. The Bible says that salvation is free. It's a gift. It doesn't cost you anything on the one hand, but on the other hand, it costs you everything. So how do we reconcile that apparent discrepancy? Well, we'll look at, in a moment, how to do that. I don't want to give away the punchline until the end. Um, look at verse 23. He's just talked to the rich young ruler, and he says, How hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. Now, why is it hard? Because God demands complete surrender. And we don't want to give complete surrender. We want to maintain certain amount of control over our lives and over our priorities, over our money, over our possessions. We want to be autonomous. And autonomous literally means self-legislating. I get to call the shots. I, I'm in charge. I'll give you a little bit of leeway in my life, but I want to maintain control. God says, no. I'll be in control. 
I'll be in charge or we don't have a relationship. And the rich young ruler trusted in his money and he loved his money so much that he wasn't willing to put that behind him and put God first. Now, I'm convinced that if the rich young ruler had said, okay, Lord, here's all my money. I surrender everything to you. That Jesus would have said, keep your money. Salvation is free. In other words, it costs you everything, but it costs you nothing. What's the difference? We'll see in a moment what I mean by that. Verse 25, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, this is an old Hebrew proverb. It has nothing to do with a gate that was called the needle gate, that if a camel got down on its knees, it could get through the gate. That's a myth. This is a real needle that a camel is expected to get through, and we know from the proverb that that's, not a, that's impossible. And Jesus says it's impossible. Now, if there's a gate out there somewhere called the needle gate where a camel gets down on his knees and gets through, then that's possible. It's not impossible. So, listen to the rest of the story. It's easier for the camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And they said to him, even more astonished, then who can be saved? And looking upon them, he said, with men it is what? Impossible. You can't save yourself. You can't, no matter how hard you try. It's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Peter began to say to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. Notice what Peter said. They'd left everything. It was complete surrender. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake but that he shall receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, farms, along with persecutions. You start to read that list and you say, wow, you mean if I give everything up for God, I get a hundred times that in this present life of barns and houses and farms and mothers and fathers and sisters and brothers. And so I get more than I give up. Yes, that's right. You do. The Blackwood Brothers, a gospel quartet that sang years ago and had a song called I Never Gave Up One Moment. Anybody remember that song? I Never Gave Up One Moment. The line goes, I never gave up one moment when I gave my heart to him. What what does that mean? It means you stand far more to gain than you ever give up. But notice what's in that list. A lot of good things in the list. Houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, farms, along with persecutions. We would prefer that he left that out. And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Now this teaching of total surrender is all throughout the scriptures. God called Abraham from Ur of the Chaldees to go to a land that he would show him. And Abraham left everything behind and went. Did he know where he was going? The scriptures tell us he didn't. He just knew that God told him to do it and he went. Complete surrender. Then after he was credited with righteousness for believing God in Genesis 15, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. 
In Genesis 22, God asks Abram to take his only son that he's waited for years to have because he and his wife were not able to have children. And she finally gets pregnant by the miracle of God. And they have a son named Isaac. And Isaac has grown up to be a young man. And God says, take him and, and sacrifice him on Mount Moriah. Now, this is a test. Are you going to completely surrender to me, Abraham? He had already done so. And yet, God calls for surrender throughout our Christian life, not just at the beginning. So we surrender everything we know that we have when we come to know Jesus Christ. It's like the pearl of great price. We go out and sell all that we have to get the one pearl. But as we grow in faith and we grow in our relationship with Christ, we discover things that we need to give up that we didn't surrender when we first met Him because we didn't know what we had yet to surrender. And that list gets larger and larger as you grow in knowledge. When I was uh, eight years old, when I was saved, I surrendered everything I knew to surrender. But I didn't know how much that was. But what I knew, I surrendered. And as I've grown over the years with my relationship with God, He has shown me every day there's more to surrender. There's more to surrender. You thought you surrendered everything, but I'm showing you through my Holy Spirit, that there are more things you have yet to surrender. So your life is a complete surrender and every day is a new surrender. And there are things I need to surrender even today. And there are things you need to surrender. And the Holy Spirit will show you what those things are. But if you're going to enter the kingdom of heaven, if you're going to start a walk with Jesus Christ, there has to be an attitude of the heart that says, I surrender. You are Lord of my life. And I give myself to you completely. I'm not bargaining with you. I'm not negotiating with you. You get everything and I get you. So when God tested Abraham with his son Isaac, in Genesis 22, we read the story and the the, the drama of him preparing the sacrifice, taking wood up to the place of the sacrifice, taking a rope and so on and so forth. And Little boy Isaac says, Dad, where's the sacrifice? He'd seen his father sacrifice animals before. And everything was present except the sacrifice. He says, where's the sacrifice? What did Abraham say? God will provide. Now Hebrews tells us that Abraham believed that God was able to raise Isaac from the dead. So that was something that was going through his mind. I'm going to sacrifice Isaac, but God is going to raise him from the dead. And so... Abraham gets everything ready, does everything he's supposed to do. He's ready to kill his son. And it says in Genesis 22, 12, he said, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not, what? Withheld. Withheld your son, your only son from me. Now for Abraham, this was his world. This was everything. It was everything. And he was willing to surrender it. Now let's look at some more verses in the New Testament that talk about this surrender that Jesus taught. This is not just an isolated incident where you find him calling for total surrender. He teaches it everywhere. Matthew 8, 19, Then a scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said, 
The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. What Jesus was saying by that is, are you really sure you're going to follow me? Because if you do, it will mean that you have no place to lay your head. Are you willing to follow me knowing that? In Matthew 8.21, another of the disciples said to him, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, follow me and allow the dead to bury their own dead. When you first read that, you think, wow, Jesus is really not very considerate. Why wouldn't he let a man go to his own father's funeral? Well, the man hadn't died yet. What What the man was saying is, can I hang around home until my dad dies? When he dies, I can bury him. I get the inheritance, then I'll follow you. What was he saying to Jesus in essence? My, my inheritance is first, you're second. Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead. And then in verse 37 of chapter 10, he says, He who loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. When he says, take up your cross and follow me, he's not talking about bearing a burden. He's talking about being willing to die. The cross was the form of execution in the first century. It's like the modern day lethal injection or electric chair or gas chamber. Now, I don't know much about corrections, but I've watched enough movies to know that when they get ready to execute the man, he takes his last walk and they call it dead man walking. Now, think about what you're thinking about when you're walking that last green mile, as it were. You're walking and you're thinking, I wonder if the Patriots or the Broncos will win. I wonder if the the Seahawks or the 49ers will win. Uh, uh, Taxes are coming up in April. What are you thinking when you're dead man walking? This is it. So when the Bible says, take up your cross and follow me, what it's saying is, be willing to surrender everything. Everything that you could dream of, everything you hope for, everything that you aspire to is sacrificed for the sake of having me in control of your life. That's what God says. The first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. And Jesus says in Matthew 10, 30, Nine, he who has found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. It's total surrender. Matthew 13, 44, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man bought and hid again. From the joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. This is a man who says, I'll give up everything for this prize, for this treasure. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like that. If you want the kingdom of heaven, you'll be willing to give up anything and everything to get to have it. And then he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. The kingdom of heaven is like that. When you find it, you'll give up everything for it. Matthew 16, 24, Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. 
But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. How much is life? How much is life? 50%? 40%? 70%? 80%? How much is life? 100%. Or as our coaches taught us in high school, 110%. Right? Give the 110%. I never figured out how you'd do that. But if you give it all, that's all that you can give. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life, that's the, that's the price. You must lose your life. You must give it up. You must have full surrender. And yet, it costs you nothing. Sounds like a contradiction, but it's not. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. How do you reconcile those two ideas? Luke 5.11, when they had brought their boats to the land, talking about Jesus' disciples, they left everything and followed him. Luke 14.26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Sounds pretty harsh. That's because God is an all or nothing God. He will be first or he will not be at all. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and he is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him. And this man began to build a tower and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? And if he finds out that he's not able to take on the 20,000, what does he do? He sends out a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So then none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. No wonder he asked the rich young ruler to sell everything and give the money to the poor. But why did he ask the rich young ruler to do that? Because for the rich young ruler, the money was his God. And so every time God calls a soul to himself through Jesus Christ, what he says to you and me is give up your gods and make me God. He will not allow you to hold on to your gods and make him God. He will be first, or he will not be at all. John twelve twenty five. He who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal life. See, the stakes are high. It's not, we're not talking about uh, nickels and dimes. We're talking about complete surrender. We're not talking about a little of your money. We're talking about all of your money. We're not talking about some of your possessions. We're talking about all of your possessions. We're not talking about a few priorities. We're talking about all your priorities. God wants everything, and yet salvation is free. Paul, the Apostle Paul, had given up everything when he was converted on the road to Damascus. The Holy Spirit knocked him off his horse. He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus asked him. And he converted, the, 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 he converted Saul to the Apostle Paul, and Paul goes out then and begins to spread the gospel, telling people about Jesus Christ. And later in his ministry, in Acts chapter 20, he's reflecting on what the Holy Spirit is telling him. 
And he says this, And now, behold, bound by the Spirit, I'm on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. But I don't consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course in the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to tell people about Jesus. He says, I'm willing to give my life up even now. And that was Paul's attitude throughout his entire ministry. So that when he wrote Timothy, he finally said, I have finished the race, I've kept the faith. I have, now there is laid up for me a treasure. And so he said, I gave it up. I gave everything up. I gave it up at the beginning and I keep giving it up. And yet it's free. How does that work? Isaiah 55 says, Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. This is how it works. You can't earn it. Jesus said to the rich young ruler, Sell everything you have and give the money to the poor. Now, if that was able to save you, everybody would be getting rid of their money and going to heaven. It's not getting rid of your money that saves you. It's not giving to the poor that saves you. It's grace through faith that saves you. But when the Holy Spirit comes to you and convicts you of your need of salvation, He brings with that a corresponding desire to give God everything. It's a disposition of the heart. It's an attitude of the heart. To illustrate, let me say what it's not. You don't, you don't say, God, I'll give you 50% if you give me 100 I'll give you 75% if you give me 100. I'll give you 90% if you give me 100. You say, God, I'll give you everything if you give me eternal life. And so he was testing the rich young ruler when he said, take everything you have, sell it, and give it to the poor. Why? Because the rich young ruler had made money his God, and God was saying, now it's time to make me your God. Get your money in the second, secondary place, not the first place. I am convinced... That if the rich young ruler had said, Okay, Lord, I will surrender all. Here's my money. Do with it as you will. Jesus would have said, Keep your money. Say, Wait a minute. I thought he asked him to give up his money and give it to the poor. He was asking for him to be willing to do so. You see, when you're willing to do so, but you're not required to do so, that's surrender. If he was required to actually give his money to the poor, that would be works be earning his salvation. I gave my money to the poor, now you owe me. We're never in God's debt. Did you know that? If there was something you could do to earn your salvation, God would owe you. And God doesn't owe you anything. And he won't owe you anything. So he makes salvation a free gift. But he wants your attitude to be such that I would surrender everything if it were required of me. So if the rich young ruler had offered Jesus all his money, he would have said, kept your money, keep your money. As Isaiah was raising the knife, what did this angel say? Do not harm the boy. Why? For I now know that you are committed to me because you withheld not your only son. In other words, he said, keep your son. Abram had to be ready to give his son and willing to give his son. And when he was, what did God say to him? Keep him. So it didn't cost him anything tangible. 
But in his heart and in his mind and in his disposition of his heart, it cost him everything. Same thing with the rich young ruler. Same thing with you. Revelation 21.6 says, Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Notice he said to those who believe without cost. Revelation 22, 17, The Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes to take the water of life, what? Without cost. Where then is boasting? Paul asks. If you're saved by what you do, if you're saved by works, then you have something to boast about. But where is boasting in the salvation that God offers? He says it's excluded. God has made a plan of salvation that excludes all boasting. If you could earn one penny's worth of your salvation, you'd boast that much. So God pays for it as a complete gift, as a free gift, so that all your boasting is in Him. And he goes on to say, where is boasting? It is excluded. What, by what kind of law? Of works? No, but a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith, what? Apart, apart from works of the law. So salvation is free. Romans 4, 3. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but what is due? How many of you this last week received a paycheck and you said, thanks for the favor? No, you've said, is that all? You were more likely to say that all than to say, really appreciate the favor, boss. Wasn't a favor. It was not supposed to have been a favor, was it? You were supposed to have worked for it. And at least ostensibly, it's something you are due, isn't it? There's a trade-off. I work, you pay. So I'm not astonished when you pay and you're not astonished when I work. This is what we expect from one another. What I'm astonished is when you pay me and I don't work. What I'm astonished is when I work and I don't require any pay. That's astonishing. And so that's why he says this in verse 4, verse 5. The one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. If you could be saved by works, then God owes you. But God will be indebted to no man, so he gives it as a free gift. Now he says in verse 5, but to the one who does not work. That ought to be a testimony that screams out from the rafters. Why was there ever a controversy in the Protestant Reformation over how a person is saved? Why was there ever a controversy? Is it faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone, or is it faith and works? What does that say? What does that say? Read it. To the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the people who've got it all together. Who does God justify? Who does he justify? The ungodly. 
So they don't work and they're ungodly and, they, and God saves them. That ought to tell you it's grace alone. Grace alone. You can't work for it. God justifies the ungodly, not the godly. And He justifies those who don't work, not those who do. Amazing. Romans 4, 6, Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the man to whom God credits righteousness, what? Apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? For we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. And Paul goes on to say, but when was it credited to him as righteousness? Before he was circumcised or after he was circumcised? And he says it was before he was circumcised. So Paul's point is that God gave Abraham the righteousness of God before he did any good work. So it can't be based on works. Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see there, it's free. Romans 11.6, If it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace is no longer grace. Verse 6 means this. If grace includes works, it's not grace. Are you with me? And there are people who say, we're saved by grace, but you have to work to get the grace. If you have to work to get the grace, verse 6 says, it's not grace. And how clear has it been so far at the latter part of this message that it is the one who does not work, but believes God, who who justifies the ungodly, And it's apart from works. And if it includes works, it's not grace. You say, well, I believe what you're saying, but you started the sermon by saying it requires total surrender. So how do you reconcile those two things? What it requires is a willingness to surrender everything, but not surrendering anything. Say, what do you mean? The rich young ruler had to be willing to surrender everything. Had he been willing to do that, God would not have required anything. So you don't actually surrender anything in terms of tangible surrender. But in your heart, you surrender everything. And that's not a work, my friend. That is not a work. When the Holy Spirit comes to you and says, do you want eternal life? And you say yes. And you say, what do you want? And he says everything. You don't say, "Uh, no, I don't think so. I think we should bargain this out and we should negotiate. You surrender everything. But how much of what you have do you actually surrender physically in that moment? Nothing. You didn't surrender anything. Do you understand what I'm saying here? Let me give you a mortgage analogy. Everybody can be familiar with a mortgage. What if somebody promised to pay off your mortgage if you were willing to surrender everything to them? And you said, I'm willing to surrender everything. And he says, then I'm going to pay off your mortgage. And you say, but here's everything. He says, I don't want you. I don't want it. Did it what did it actually cost you? 
Nothing. But what was the disposition of your heart before you could receive it? I'll give you everything. So it's a willingness. It's a disposition of the heart. It's an attitude that the Holy Spirit brings about in the heart of those who are being converted. It's complete surrender. And Jesus teaches this all throughout the Scriptures, but He also teaches us that it is free. So how do you reconcile those two things? It costs us everything in terms of our attitude and willingness, but it costs us nothing in terms of what we actually take out of our pocket. You don't spend a dime, but you're willing to spend everything. You don't walk a a foot, but you're willing to walk a mile. It's about willingness. And so you need to ask yourself, have I surrendered everything to the Lord Jesus Christ when I was saved? Did I have an attitude that I want salvation, I want everything, but I'm not going to give you anything? Repentance, that the, the repentance that the Holy Spirit brings when He's saving you is a repentance that says surrender. Surrender to His Lordship. There are people who say, and I disagree with them, you must surrender to His sa- being Savior before you can surrender to Him being Lord. He is both Savior and Lord when He saves you. Now, we don't know what Lordship looks like completely, so we surrender what we know. And for me, it was Tonka Toys and because I was eight years old, Tonka Toys and G.I. Joes and my friends and not taking quarters out of my mother's purse and several other things that I could think about, but my attitude was everything. The disposition of my heart was total surrender. I didn't think, think I was in any position to bargain with God at that point and say, well, I'll do this if you'll do that and I'll do this if you'll do that. It was complete surrender. Now, what we discover as we walk with God is that we didn't surrender everything that we thought we did because there's so much more to surrender that we weren't aware of when we surrendered. So you have kids and God says, surrender those too. And you have a wife and God says, surrender her too. And you get a new car and God says, surrender that too. And you get a new house and God says, surrender that too. And you get new possessions and God says, surrender that. So your whole life as a Christian is about giving everything over to God that you promised to do the day you got saved. But here's the key. Nothing that you give up in actuality earns your salvation at all. So all the surrendering accrues no salvation whatsoever. All the surrendering doesn't merit your salvation. It doesn't purchase your salvation. Because your salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And it comes by faith, not by works. It's a mystery how God can ask us to surrender everything, but salvation is without cost. So, if the rich young ruler had said to Jesus, here here are all my possessions, I think Jesus would have said, keep your money. Keep your money. And I think then the rich young ruler would have said, I thought you said to surrender everything. And Jesus would say, I did. And the rich young ruler would say, well, here's my money. And Jesus says, keep your money. How's that possible? Because I see your heart. You're willing to surrender everything. I'm not asking you to actually give me anything. Because salvation is something I've done for you. It's a free gift. But I want a relationship that that involves your complete surrender to me. So, 
here's the takeaway from this morning's message. If you're not a Christian, are you willing to surrender everything to the Lord Jesus Christ? Because He's all or nothing. He wants you to give yourself completely to Him, not partially, not reservedly, not 10%, not 80%, not 90%. He wants all of you. Surrender. And if you are a Christian and you've already done that, how much more does He want you to surrender that you're aware of now that you weren't aware of when you surrendered the first time? What is He asking you to give up? What is He asking you to surrender? He'll tell you. And as you grow in Christ, you learn, I need to give that up. I need to give that up. I need to give that up. And we are willing to give up whatever the Lord reveals to us that we ought to give up. So you enter the kingdom of God like a child with this, what we might call, biblical gullibility. An an easy desire to believe God, a willingness to believe Him with whatever He says. That's the gullibility of a child who's willing to believe whatever their parents say when they're young. Jesus says, that's the kind of faith I'm looking for. Faith that is that abandons itself to the one that it places itself in. So you must enter as a child. And secondly, you must enter as a pauper. What is a pauper? Someone who has nothing to give God, but has only something to receive from God. One of our hymns puts it this way, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. So you don't bring anything to God when you surrender to Him as Savior and Lord. You're getting everything from Him. You must surrender as a pauper. And then finally, you must enter the kingdom in full surrender. Full surrender. Jesus Christ came to be your Savior and Lord, not just your Savior. And so He comes both as Savior and Lord when He offers you eternal life. That's what He told the rich young ruler. That's what He told the people who said they would follow him. You know what he said? Have you counted the cost? The birds of the air have nests, the foxes have holes, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Remember the the, the mother who asked if her two sons could sit, one on the right, one on the left? Jesus said, you don't know what you're asking. Are your sons able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? And what was her answer? The disciples who said they wanted one place on his left and the other said, yes, we're able to drink the cup. And you know what? They did. They really didn't know what they were talking about when they said we're able, but they did. Every apostle died a martyr's death. And I'm going to include John on the Isle of Patmos because at some point he died as a prisoner of the Lord because of his faith. And Jesus taught Peter in John chapter 21 how he would give his life as a martyr when he said, someday they will come for you and they will stretch up your arms and they will take you where you don't want to go. And John says he was saying by this what kind of death Peter would die to glorify him. And what happened to Peter? History tells us that Peter was crucified and he asked 
if he could be crucified upside down because he wasn't worthy to die the same death of his Lord. That's, that's complete surrender. That, that is a complete surrender. It isn't, I'll give you Sunday and Wednesday if you give me eternal life. It's total surrender. Jesus taught, a man in all of his joy finds a treasure in a field. And in his joy, he goes out and sells all that he has so that he can buy that field so that he can have that treasure. In other words, a person who finds something of great value will do whatever is required and is be willing to do whatever is required to, to acquire it. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. So here's a point that I want you to take away this morning besides those that I've already mentioned. If you hear somebody preaching a grace that requires works, it's not grace. If you hear somebody saying that you're saved by grace, but in order to get the grace, you have to work, it's not grace. The New Testament is clear. You cannot marry grace and works without eliminating grace. That's the, the, the letter of the Galatians is, is really strong on that point. I do not nullify the cross of Christ, for if, if, if salvation is by works, then Christ died needlessly. So Paul's attitude was, if you mix grace and works together to be saved, you nullify the work of Christ and you nullify grace. So grace is no longer grace. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace and thank you for purchasing our salvation where we offer no money, we offer no payment, we offer no um, assets to earn our salvation or to pay for it or to merit our salvation. It's completely free from you and yet you ask us to completely surrender. Lord, help us, those of us who have not done that, to do that. We can only do it by your Holy Spirit's power and conviction. It is not within the unsaved man's nature to surrender unless the Holy Spirit brings that about in his heart. And for those of us who have surrendered, keep showing us what we have yet to surrender so that we can keep making you Lord of our lives and not things, not money, not possessions, not relationships, not accomplishments, just you. Show us what we need to surrender. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.